This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I said you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. Six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd have to plan in there to, to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who served time here. Just like last week, you know. I'm not Anthony. This is very clearly not Anthony. Um, that is because today, again, we have Sam as our storyteller. But unlike last week, we do actually get to have Anthony in the studio to give his brilliant comments um, and, <laughs> and to to laugh with us as we be silly and, and have fun. So first of all, Sam, welcome back. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be able to make this many appearances in one season. Yeah. Glad to have you. And Anthony, welcome as a commentator. This oh, is a new hey. role for you. Yes, I love being the uh, voice of the audience asking questions. So Perfect. I'm here. I'm excited. Well, hopefully <laughs> then audience, he asks the questions that you are all thinking. So like no pressure, just, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. be on it. Um, well, Sam, how are you doing since we last spoke? I, I've been doing well. I'm enjoying the kind of the spooky weather. It's beautiful mm-hmm. outside, very much fall the rain has been really nice. What about you, Sky? How, how was your soccer game? It was good. Yeah, I played my first indoor soccer game last night. I am definitely sore. And the new indoor place is um, nothing like the old indoor place. It's just me taking shots to the stomach and no, hopefully not to the face. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it was fun. I'm always glad to be back playing soccer. Um, and like I said, I'm a goalkeeper, so I I don't run around. That's too much for me. It's, <laughs> soccer is hard, and so I'll just be a goalie. But I, w- I was going to comment on on your, you know, how you were saying, oh, it's so beautiful. You know, the weather's kind of cloudy. It's rainy. And I will tell you, coming from Texas, there are people who will vehemently disagree with you. Like, it's a very, <laughs> like, northern and, like, sort of mountain west, Pacific northwest thing to be like, oh, my gosh, it's so nice outside when it's cold because people in Texas are like, it's 60 degrees and they're like I had to put on my overcoat and you're like it's 60 degrees what are you talking about (laughs) Um, but I'm with you I'm so glad to be back in this weather and also Anthony how are you by the way I'm doing great I had my same interaction with uh, I was in Fresno and Mm. you know just enjoying their 70 degree they were all very cold and (laughs) 70 they were cold it was windy and cold yeah it was 90 the first day and then it went drastically to 70 and I was just like, what are you guys talking about? I'm going to go jump in the pool. <laughs> Seriously. So, yeah, it was it was beautiful. Um, How long were you in Fresno for? About four days. Nice. Yeah, so fun. Very nice. I got a nice little sunburn. You know, hey. I was like, wow, wow. This might be the last one I get. Probably. Probably. <laughs> yes. Glad to have you. And I'm and, um, glad you had a good time in Fresno. Very good. Yeah, thank and, you. Yeah, of course. <laughs> So anyway, um, I am talking about number 11828, Philnoma Maxine Monsisco. 
So sources for her story today are her inmate file, newspapers.com articles, ancestry.com records, ISHS reference series on the Snake River, Snake River on nps.gov, an article, History of Blackfoot, Idaho, on u-s-history.com, an article on Lyndon B. Johnson and the Great Society from obamawhitehouse.archives.gov, and then uh, just some brief mentions from Wikipedia on Snake Indians, Blackfoot, Idaho, the Great Society, United States and the Vietnam War, Operation Rolling Thunder, and Selma to Montgomery Marches. Philnoma Maxine Monsisco was born possibly Tilnoma Maxine Punkin was her punkin like pumpkin with but replaced the M with an N punkin. So she may have been born Tilnoma. Records kind of have both of her names, so I'm not sure um, which is which. Tilnoma Maxine Punkin on May 11th, 1941, on the Fort Hall Indian Reservation to James Punkin and Laura Appenay Punkin, and both of her parents were enrolled members of the Shoshone tribe. Now, interestingly, the tribal roles on which James and Laura appeared listed their tribe as snake Shoshone, which was a term I um, had never heard before. So the term snake was often used by American immigrants to refer to the tribes of the northern Paiute, Bannock, and Shoshone. And so the Snake River that runs through southern Idaho is actually named after the Snake Indians, not the other way around, huh. um, which I always assumed it was called the snake just because it looked like a snake, yeah. but all rivers look like snakes, I guess. <laughs> um, but that is actually what it is named for. But so saying that, the ISHS reference series gave two possibilities as to why the Snake River is called that, either because the Snake Indians were called the Snake by neighboring Plains Indians, quote, possibly because they reportedly used snake heads painted on sticks to terrify their Plains enemies, end quote, or because Plains Indians referred to these bands using a snake-like motion of conventional sign language to refer to them, which to untrained eyes would look like. Uh, you know, the movement of a river. So regardless of how they got their name, the Snake tribal members were members of the Shoshone-Bannock tribes, obviously making Philnoma a member of the Shoshone-Bannock tribe as well. Philnoma was uh, the third of four kids. She had older brothers Gilbert, who was born in 1937, and Levine, born in 1939, and then younger sister Luann. So she attended school in the Blackfoot school system and attended Blackfoot Senior High School, go Broncos. Um, And she attended there until the first semester of 10th grade. I don't know much about what she did when she dropped out, but around the same time that she dropped out in March 1954, her parents divorced. Now, one thing I will say is she seems like she was very close to her family, both for good and bad, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, So her family, including her own brother, seemed to sort of always have trouble with the law. So uh, in 1950, her paternal aunt Mandy was arrested for assault with a deadly weapon. In 1958, her brother Levine was arrested for drunkenness after getting involved in an accident with a supposedly stolen car. In 1961, her brother Gilbert was arrested for drunk driving and driving on a revoked license. And uh, her brother Levine was fined $25 for petty larceny and $15 for drunkenness on that same night. And so... Another pattern that we see with all these arrests and trouble with the law is the family had seemed to have difficulty with alcohol. And this is also going to be a constant in Philnoma's life, unfortunately. And so the next thing that we know of her is that in late 1959, when she was about 18, she married a man named Frank Monsisco. Frank was a Navajo man. Uh, He worked as a laborer in both the railroad and farming industries, and he was from Farmington, New Mexico. He had been married once already, um, and he already had two kids. And his ex-wife, Ivy, had filed for divorce on the grounds of non-support and drunkenness. So this is not 
someone who necessarily is going to be pulling her out of, uh, you know, previous uh, familial patterns, unfortunately. From the Idaho State Journal on October 15th, 1961, reported that Maxine P. Punkin, often the name under which she appeared in the newspapers, and her one-year-old son were both in a car accident, quote, when a car in which they were riding hit a telephone pole, end quote. This car had been driven by Elizabeth May Apenay Begay, who was a maternal aunt, and she was cited for driving while intoxicated. Interestingly, upon her intake into the penitentiary, Philnoma claimed that she did not have any children. Um, and so I couldn't find any official re- records of her having children, nor does either of her obituary or Frank's obituary doesn't say that they had were survived by children. And so I don't know why this report says there was a one-year-old son involved, unless it was Elizabeth's one-year-old son. But I think Elizabeth, if I remember right, and again, it's been a while since I've done this research, but I do think she was older. Um, So I don't know where this son comes from. So uh, about a month later, in November 1961, according to the Idaho State Journal, Philnoma was charged with petty larceny after allegedly stealing meat, gloves, and cheese from a Safeway. Um, but I do think this charge was eventually dropped. Oh, um, but I, I, those are <laughs> meat and cheese, normal, you know, you need a good sandwich. Uh, <laughs> the gloves, I, I guess, is November. So I guess it's colds, right? That's just <laughs> just a, an odd yeah. combination of, yeah. of items. Um, then sadly, on June 28, 1962, the Times News reported that Philnoma's mother, Laura Appenay, had died in a car accident. Now, according to this newspaper report, Laura had been run over by a pickup oh. truck. Oh. Quote, the truck alle- allegedly carrying four other persons has not been found. When officers were called, the woman was lying on the street, dazed and drunk. She told officers the door of the truck had come open and she had fallen out. Wheels of the vehicle ran over her leg. The police chief said she indicated she did not know the other persons in the truck, end quote. So she actually didn't die from being run over. She uh, was rushed into surgery to to try to fix her leg, and she unfortunately died during the surgery. Oh. Um, and she was only 42 years old. Wow. So just tragic. So sad. That's a violent end. Yeah. And to still not say who you were in the truck with. Yeah, like. to say you didn't know them. And again, just a really unfortunate pattern of, of continual drunk. Like everything that happens is because someone was drunk, which is so, so unfortunate. Then um, a month later, on July 30th, 1962, again from the Times News, quote, police were holding a woman from Fort Worth, Texas in jail today as a result of a stabbing Saturday night. Maxine P. Punkin, 21, Fort Hall, told officers she was riding in a car with a man when a woman lunged for him and stabbed her in the right leg. Detective Robert Fackrell said a woman identified as Gladys Williams, a recent arrival here from Fort Worth, is being held under a charge of assault with a deadly weapon, end quote. So... Philnoma was stabbed while she was just in a car with with this guy. And according to the Idaho Daily Statesman, quote, the wound required surgery at Pocatello St. Anthony Hospital and was six inches long and an inch deep, end quote. I couldn't find any resolution to this incident, whether the woman um, was eventually charged with that. Uh, Of course, we know that Philnoma, you know, healed up at some point. But, you know, a month after her mother's death, she's now getting stabbed uh, in the leg. Then in June 1963, Philnoma is arrested in Walla Walla, Washington for vagrancy. December 1963, arrested for drunkenness in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I don't know why she was at either of these places. Then 1964, 
you know, she's had kind of a rough life up to this point, but 1964 is just the cherry on top of it all. This is a rough, rough year for Fulnoma. First, on February 17th, she was in a car accident that sent both of her brothers, Levine and Gilbert, to the hospital. So from the Idaho State Journal, quote, six persons were involved in the one car accident at the intersection of the Simplot Gay Mine Road and Old Highland Road. The car apparently missed a turn and tumbled down an embankment into the Ross Fort Creek, which at the present is dry. The driver of the car has not been determined, end quote. So she had been riding in the car with both her brothers and her husband, Frank, as well as other passengers, Earl Kilgore and Ace Appenay. And it was reported that Levine had to undergo surgery for abdominal injuries after this accident. So this is a pretty serious accident. This isn't yeah. just like, oh, you know, we kind of road was icy or whatever and we slipped. It seems like yeah. it was pretty serious. Then interestingly, a month later, the Idaho State Journal reported that Phil Noma was being charged with assault with a dangerous weapon after stabbing her own brother Levine on that same day. So it seems that the abdominal injuries that Levine suffered may not have been from the accident, but perhaps what caused the accident in the first place. And so she was actually found guilty of simple assault against her brother and placed on three months probation. Simple assault. Simple assault is what the newspaper called it. And yeah, and I don't, I wonder if, you know, Levine sort of set, you know, tried to talk the charges down. I don't know the circumstances as to why she stabbed him. Um, You know, it seems like they spent a lot of time together, so it doesn't seem that they they didn't like each other. Um, I I wish I knew more about what that was, but when I read that it was because she had stopped him. I was like, what is happening? Um, and and yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm very curious why it's not assault with a deadly weapon. Well, like, that's what she was originally charged with, and she was found guilty of simple assault. So it must be either there wasn't enough evidence to prove maybe that she, like, I don't know. I guess I, I don't know yeah. what, again, what no, the circumstances yeah, were behind no that. Was yeah, found, or maybe yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. She felt threatened or something. Yeah. But again, she was in the in the car with her other brother, her husband, and two other people. And, and Ace Appenay seems like is like a cousin or, or something like that. You know, that's her mother's maiden name. So just a weird set of circumstances. Yeah. So that was in February. Then in September, an article in the South Idaho Press from Burley reported that Philnoma's husband, Frank, and his brother, Tom, had gotten into an argument with a man named Claude Johns in downtown Burley near the railroad tracks between Miller and Conant Avenue. The article doesn't say what the argument was about, but it ended in Frank being shot in the hand by Claude. After Claude shot Frank, both Frank and Tom, quote, beat him severely, end quote. Um, And so to add insult to his own injury, Claude was charged with assault with a deadly weapon in December. He pleaded guilty to aggravated assault. Frank wasn't in the position to testify against Claude in his trial in December 1964 because on October 23rd, 1964, Frank was shot and killed on the Fort Hall Reservation by Philnoma's brother, Gilbert. Whoa. So... It's her other brother. So she stabbed Levine. Then her brother Gilbert is the one who shoots and kills her husband. What a violent life. It's, Car yeah. crashes, stabbings, and shootings. Like, yeah. Whew. Yeah, it seems like the conflict between the family members yeah. is escalating. It's totally yeah. escalating. And so according to the Idaho State Journal, Gilbert and Frank, quote, were involved in a dispute over a bottle of wine when the shooting occurred, end quote. But this is all the information we have to say about what happened. And so... Newspapers, both the Idaho Statesman and the Idaho State Journal, word this 
incident really oddly, saying that Frank was, quote, found shot to death Friday morning in the Ross Fort Creek of the Fort Hall Indian Reservation, end quote. And Frank had been shot in the head with a 22 caliber. So not sure if authorities were called right after the shooting happened or if the reason that the newspaper says he was found is because the shooting happened and then everyone left for the body to be discovered. I have a hard time believing the second option because it seems like the family was quite close and wouldn't have just left the body, even though that, you know, even though it was a dispute, this is still your family member. But, you know, like they had been around each other for quite a while and, and, you know, clearly spending time with the brothers. And, you know, so I and if it really was just over a bottle of wine, it seems like maybe he didn't mean to shoot and kill him, maybe to scare him or hurt him a little bit so it doesn't seem like it they would have just left it but gilbert was a suspect from the moment that frank's body was quote-unquote found so it seems it was probably more uh the first option so gilbert was immediately charged with first degree murder uh with u.s attorney sylvan a jepson stating that gilbert had killed frank with quote premeditation and malicious aforethought end quote So Gilbert's case was rolled over into 1965, when in March, Gilbert pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of voluntary manslaughter. He was sentenced to 10 years, but oddly, quote, Judge Fred Taylor said Punkin would be eligible for parole at such a time as the parole board would review his case. Ordinarily, in such a case, one third of a sentence must be served before parole is considered, end quote. So basically what that's saying is whenever the parole board feels like having him up, then he's welcome, you know, to mm-hmm. to apply and, and be up for parole, which, again, I think seems much more that it was an accident than it was premeditated murder and that even the authorities seem to agree that that's the case. Now, um, do you remember the law about crimes committed by Native Americans on the reservation uh, that I talked about in Estella Wilson's case, which was called the Major Crimes Law of 1885? So this comes into play here as well. If you don't remember, the basics are that any crime committed by an American Indian on reservation land is taken care of by the tribes themselves, except for 12 particularly egregious crimes, which are then prosecuted by the federal government. And one of these crimes that is allowed to be prosecuted by the government is actually manslaughter. So because Gilbert was found guilty of manslaughter by the federal government, he was sent to the closest federal penitentiary, which was McNeil Island in Washington state. I'm not sure how long he was there for, but he was arrested on a different charge in Idaho in 1971. So he wasn't there any longer than six years. So then, to add insult to injury, in Philnoma's life, only one day after her brother Gilbert pleaded guilty to shooting and killing her husband, Idaho State Journal reported that Philnoma's father, James Punkin, had been found dead in his cell in the Bingham County Jail. And so, I know, it's, it's, 64 is, or 64 and 65, just like a rough, rough year. Bad year. Yeah, and so... What follows here is a brief discussion of suicide. So please take care of yourself when listening and skip ahead about a minute or so if you need to. So at 1.30 a.m. on March 10th, James had been arrested near Blackfoot for sodomy and was being held in the Bingham County Jail. One prisoner stated that James had been alive at 9 a.m. However, at 10.45 a.m., James was found hanging in his cell from a length of blanket tied to the top of his cell. And he was 55 years old at the time of his death. So it is clear that Philnoma was surrounded by tragedy in her family in the span of not even a full year. Also was around a lot of people who were involved in crime and problems with alcohol. And this just, I don't think, gives her much of a chance not to become uh, a criminal of some kind uh, in the future. 
So about a month before Gilbert was sentenced for killing her husband in February 1965, Philnoma was arrested for, quote, strong arm robbery, end quote. But this actually seems like an inaccurate description for what actually happened. So according to her own account, Philnoma and a friend, Mildred Burns, were out drinking at a local tavern in Blackfoot, and they met a man named Ray Walker, who began buying them whiskey. And it's probably safe to presume that the three of them probably got quite drunk. And perhaps taking advantage of the state that Ray was in, one of them lifted Ray's wallet from his pocket and then left the tavern at around 11 p.m. He very quickly realized that his wallet was missing and he reported the theft to the police. Within five minutes, the police apprehended Philnoma and Mildred and they were charged with robbery. So again, it doesn't strong armed robbery feels a bit much like they little dramatic. It's a little dramatic. Um but I, I imagine that the family doesn't have a great re- uh, relationship with authorities. And so this could be a way of the authorities really trying to, like, lock up this family. Mm-hmm. But on March 8th, 1965, only two days before her father's death and three days before her brother was sentenced for killing her husband, she went to court for the robbery and was placed on probation. And the stipulation was that the first 60 days of her probation were to be spent in the Bingham County Jail. So I'm going to pause here for a second and do what I always do and talk about, uh, you know, where this crime happened. So this crime happened in Blackfoot. We've talked about Blackfoot quite a bit, and I talked about it especially in episode 23 with Phyllis May Mink, but it has been a while. So here's a brief rundown of Blackfoot. So the city um, is about 20 miles north of Pocatello in southeastern Idaho. Uh, It was named Blackfoot by fur traders of the Hudson Bay Company, named after Blackfoot natives they had met in 1818 because their moccasins were blackened after fires had blackened the area in 1812, which is actually, it's the legend, or because they themselves dyed or painted the souls black. Most Blackfoot tribal members are currently from the Blackfoot Indian Reservation in Montana, as well as in Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia, Canada. The first white settlers in the Blackfoot area was in 1866, and they started farming and ranching. Then the Utah Northern Railroad expanded into the Blackfoot area, which of course helps the area grow. On January 13, 1885, Blackfoot was named the county seat of the newly formed Bingham County. Originally, the county seat was supposed to be Eagle Rock, which we now know as Idaho Falls. But the night before the legislation was supposed to be signed, men from Blackfoot bribed a clerk to erase Eagle Rock and ride in Blackfoot, which is (laughs) hilarious. Uh, Interestingly, the origin of this accusation arose several years after the event by a Blackfoot newspaper editor. So it could be, you know, a a legend, but it's hilarious. And then also in 1885, the Idaho legislature set aside $20,000 in bonds to establish the territory's first what they called insane asylum in Blackfoot, which we now know as the State Hospital South. And that is still there. Then in 1889, the U.S. Land Office was established in Blackfoot, and in the first three months, and the Land Office was uh, to uh, promote homesteading in the area, again, to really, really grow the area. So in the first three months that it was opened, about 300 homesteads were processed. On May 7th, 1907, the Land Office became a registration office when the Fort Hall Reservation opened to white settlement. And unfortunately, several thousand homesteaders rushed to Blackfoot to stake a claim on native lands, dispossessing Shoshone-Bannock natives even more uh, than they already were. Bingham County is the largest potato-growing county in the state, which I didn't know, but I am not surprised by. Um, So Blackfoot is known, apparently, as the potato capital of the world, which we love. Um, And it is also home to the Idaho Potato Museum. 
which is actually hosted in the site of the old Oregon Short Line Railroad Depot. So if you're in Blackfoot and you want to know more about Idaho and its famous potatoes, go check that out. And it's in the old Railroad Depot, which is old depots are always so cool. We should have them as a guest. Sometime. We should. A we should go. We should take. Potatoes. We should take a trip to Blackfoot as <sighs> as a as a podcast that and so and fun. like live reporting live from the Idaho Potato Museum from <laughs> the Ida the potato capital of the world. <laughs> Amazing. So since I've done this history before, I thought it might be interesting doing the exercise I've done in the past where I sort of take a look at the front page of the newspaper and see like what's going on both nationally and uh, locally on a significant day in this woman's life. So here's what I've done. I've pulled up the front page of the Idaho State Journal from March 8th, 1965, which is the day that she was sentenced. And there is some really interesting stuff. So bear with me as I'm an annoying American history PhD student. So the biggest headline on the front page is, quote, Johnson asks ban on guns by mail, end quote, which is, you know, a fascinating headline given a lot of the news, you know, in the last year, in the last month. So this is what the the article says, quote, President Johnson asked Congress today to ban sale of mail order firearms, lighten control over drugs and strengthen safety in streets as part of an attack on crime as a national problem, end quote. And so this is part of Johnson's biggest program called the Great Society, which was aimed at creating, quote, a place where the meaning of man's life matches the marvels of man's labor, end quote. And basically, it's just aimed to up the quality of life for everyone in the country. The Great Society was a domestic social program that cast a huge net aimed at, quote, aid to education, attack on disease, Medicare, urban renewal, beautification, conservation, development of depressed regions, a wide-scale fight against poverty, prevention of crime and delinquency, and removal of obstacles to the right to vote, end quote, which sounds excellent. And unfortunately, things we're still wrestling with, gosh, 60 years later. Uh, According to the article, quote, Johnson did say that he is proposing legislatures to prohibit shipments of firearms in interstate commerce except among importers, manufacturers, and dealers licensed by the Treasury Department. Mail order sales and individuals would thus stop, Johnson said. It was a mail order rifle which assassin Lee Harvey Oswald used to strike down President John F. Kennedy end quote, who had been killed about 16 months before in November 1963. Another interesting note is that he was proposing a crackdown on drugs, not to punish those who use narcotics and sedatives and stimulants, but, quote, emphasize efforts to restore them to a productive role in society, end quote. So what else is going on in 1965? Any guesses? Civil rights movement? Yes, but another big thing. I'm drawing a blank. The Vietnam War, baby. Of course, of course. (laughs) Um, So war had been going on between various troops in communist North Vietnam and, theoretically, Republican South Vietnam since 1955. The U.S. got much more heavily involved after the Gulf of Tonkin incident in July 1964, when North Vietnamese torpedo boats attacked a U.S. destroyer anchored in the Gulf of the Northwest South China Sea. Then on March 2nd, 1965, the U.S. Air Force and Navy began Operation Rolling Thunder, a targeted and strategic bombing campaign against northern Vietnam. Part of the point of this was to boost the morale of southern Vietnam troops, but I think it was also possibly to show the US mil- U.S.'s military prowess in halting the spread of communism. Um, an AP article from Washington published on the front page of the Idaho State Journal was titled, quote, Marines to shoot back if fired on, end quote, which said, Quote, Secretary of State Dean Rusk says there's no doubt that if American Marines in South Vietnam are shot at, they will shoot back. Rusk said that the 3,500 Marines are at Da Nang, 
by request of the South Vietnamese government. The secretary also reiterated the American stand that any negotiations must be preceded by evidence that North Vietnam will leave South Vietnam alone, end quote. Now, interestingly, or, and perhaps unsurprisingly, Operation Rolling Thunder ended in November 1968 in a distinct U.S. failure. Over 1,000 U.S. troops were killed, wounded, or captured, and the U.S. lost 922 aircraft. The North Vietnam lost about 20,000 troops, but more devastatingly, between 30,000 and 182,000 civilians were killed. Wow. Yeah, Vietnam War is tough. Um, and now, you also mentioned the civil rights movement. That, of course, was going on. Now, more specifically, at the same time, what was going on was the 54-mile Selma to Montgomery marches led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to demonstrate their desire to exercise their constitutional right to vote. The first one happened the very day before this newspaper was published on March 7th when marchers were attacked by Alabama state troopers after crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge at the county line. So I'm going to read from the article. Please remember the language belongs to the newspaper writers in 1965, not me. Quote, an attempted 50-mile march to the Alabama Capitol at Montgomery by Negroes pleading for civil rights erupted into bloody racial violence in a clash with state police Sunday. King decided to remain in Atlanta and did not, as planned, lead Sunday's march attempt by about 450 Negroes, which was broken up by blue-helmeted troopers wielding nightsticks, shotguns, tear gas grenades, and wearing gas masks. About 40 Negroes were injured in the violent confrontation about a mile after the march began. If it has to be a path of blood, it is going to be established that Negroes have the right to walk on highways in Alabama, said Reverend James Bevel. The highway was cluttered with packs, bedrolls, and other camping equipment when the melee ended. They had been left behind by Negroes fleeing the tear gas and club-swinging state troopers. Alabama Governor George Wallace refused to comment, end quote. And this event became known as Bloody Sunday, which is a term you may recognize from your high school textbooks. The second march attempt from Selma to Montgomery took place two days later on March 9th, which ended after the group crossed the bridge at the county line and the police stepped aside to let them pass. But as King had not received a promise of protection from police from either the Alabama government or the federal government, he turned the marchers back to prevent another uh, bloody confrontation. Then finally, after getting a promise for protection from President Johnson, the third march began on March 21st and ended in Montgomery on March 25th when 25,000 people gathered in front of the Montgomery State Capitol in support of voting rights. In terms of local news, there wasn't very much, I think, because of how big these national stories were. One article sadly profiled how a 38-year-old man from Grace named Laver A. Winley died after his car overturned on Highway 30 near Soda Springs. Another semi-local article discussed how protesters, including the Salt Lake City chapter of the NAACP, which stands for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, gathered in front of the LDS church offices and threatened to picket them, quote, if church leaders fail to support fair employment and housing, end quote. And this was actually during the time when the LDS church did not allow black members to receive the priesthood or enter the temple, which is very important to LDS members. So it would make sense uh, that church leaders did not actively support equal employment and housing opportunities as well. The article said, quote, more than 300 civil rights demonstrators marched on the church office building and held a song and prayer meeting at its doors. The NAACP said Utah lawmakers were using the LDS church's silence to stymie fair employment and fair housing legislation. The NAACP said it learned that more than 90 percent of Utah legislators are members of the LDS church, end quote. The LDS Church would not rescind these membership bans until 1978, which they did eventually rescind thanks in large part to similar instances of public pressure during the civil rights movement. 
So anyway, we'll go back to Phil Noma. March since. 1965 was yeah. a crazy, it was a, it busy was a big, time. Yes, 64 and 65 for Phil Noma were, were busy and devastating years, but important. they were also important years in the country's history. So Phil Noma, as we know, has committed robbery and has been placed on probation. A letter to Judge Ezra P. Monson, the sentencing judge, from Joe Spivey, the district agent for the state probation and parole, written on July 6, 1965, stated further that, quote, the court's attention is drawn to this agent's report under the date of March 24, 1965, at which time it was advised that on the day the subject was placed on probation, she has to be returned into court and her probation order be set aside and that she be sentenced to the Idaho State Penitentiary, at which time the court indicated that the subject would be continued on probation as previously ordered, end quote. So I have to wonder if Philnoma knew she was probably just going to get into more trouble if she remained on probation, which then is going to lead to a harsher sentence. The letter continued, quote, the court's attention is also drawn to the fact that the subject refused to sign the Idaho Agreement of Probation and was very hostile and obnoxious and refused to cooperate with this agency in any way, end quote. It did state that she did eventually sign the probation agreement, but again, it seems that she was trying to get herself somewhere that she could be away from these problems. So she entered the Bingham County Jail to serve her 60-day sentence, and upon her release was reminded of the probation agreement that she had signed. Joe Spivey also had, quote, a long interview with the subject concerning her drinking problem, end quote. She was released on her own recognizance on May 20th. This was probably not the best idea, as you probably could have guessed. And almost immediately after her release, she was arrested in Pocatello for drunkenness. And of course, drinking was against her parole. But apparently, this arrest was not reported to the parole board, quote, by this agent in the hope that with some counseling and a strict probation, the subject should be able to live a marginal probation, end quote. So because this arrest was not reported, she remained outside of the penitentiary. And I imagine if her whole goal was to get into the penitentiary, she was very frustrated that she was having to sort of continually break her probation. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, this letter written on July 6th stated that after essentially being released on probation again, quote, many attempts have been made to locate the subject to no avail. All local county and state law enforcement officials have been requested to assist in contacting the subject. But as of this date, the subject has made no effort to contact this agent concerning her probation. Due to the above violations and apparent total disregard for probation, which the subject has, it is this agent's recommendation that a bench warrant be issued for the subject's arrest and she be returned into court, that her probation be revoked and whatever action deemed necessary by the court be taken, end quote. So it turns out she had been arrested on June 27th in Idaho Falls for intoxication, but this news may not have reached Joe Spivey by the time he wrote the letter. And so she was fined $30 and given a suspended sentence on the condition that she leave town. And she was probably like, what the heck? What do I have to do? Eventually, this arrest... I feel like she's just lawless. Like, she doesn't care about probation. Right. She's like, they just keep slapping me on the wrist. I'm just going to keep... I mean, and that's the thing, though, is, like, you know, they see this as, like, we're giving her such a good chance to, like, turn her life around. And she's just like, if you're not going to do anything about this, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Because that's, you know, which, you know, how many of us have kind of done that where we kind of break the rules and we're like, oh, are we going to get in trouble? And then we don't get in trouble. Like, oh, so we'll just keep doing it. So, but eventually this arrest was reported to the authorities. So there was no avoiding the consequences of her violated parole. She appeared before Judge Ezra Monson on July 28th to answer for this violation, and he sentenced her to not more than three years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. And so she entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on July 29th, 1965. So here is her intake form. 
County Bingham, no races listed, sex, female, age 24, height 63 and a half inches, weight 109 and a half pounds, eyes brown, hair black, complexion brown Indian, no military record, no occupation listed, her marital status is widowed, and she lists no children, um, her education is the ninth grade. Uh, on her battalion, it's noted that her teeth were fair, her nose had been broken, she had a vaccination scar on her left arm, eight scars on her legs. So they were five in front on her right leg, one above the knee, which is probably from that stabbing, four below the knee, two below the knee on the back, and then she had one scar on her left leg on the, the back side of it. When she entered, the women's ward was at or perhaps even beyond capacity. There were 14 other inmates, including Phyllis May Mink, who again I talked about in episode 23, who was also from Blackfoot, and also Lula Ann Shreve, who I covered in episode 49. She would also eventually serve with previous podcast subjects such as Barbara Ann Singleton, uh, Sarah Sue Roach, and Bonnie Jean Deaton. She would end up serving time with 27 different women before the end of her sentence. And remember, she only had a sentence of up to three years, which gives you an idea of, I think, how crowded the women's ward was and how much authorities are trying to get people out, but then more people are just coming in. Mm -hmm. So this is a crowded, crowded place to be right now. If you've ever been inside the women's ward, try to imagine 14 plus women in there that would be claustrophobic yeah they had that we have a photo of it yeah. of the bunk bed in the main area uh -huh. there's only room for you know seven double cells so yeah. only 14 should be in there right at full capacity at which full would be capacity. rough with one bathroom yep yeah. cramped little kitchen yep enough activity spaces for the women in the central hallway so it's packed plus mm -hmm. a bunk bed in there oh yeah Gosh. Can you yeah. imagine winters? Oh. I mean, I guess there'd be so many people you would be warm, way more warm if there were just one or two. But yeah. but especially oh. if you can't go outside, you are going oh. to go stir crazy with all of these women. Yeah. Oof, no thank you. <laughs> so as is often the case, we don't really know much about her time in prison. The women's ward was probably so packed that unless someone completely acted up, they just didn't really get remarked upon. She first applied for parole in the May 1906 meeting of the board. Prior to her application, the Board of Corrections had to do a pre-release investigation to determine if her plan was satisfactory. So from May 1966, her report read, quote, She is an Indian and her home is in Fort Hall. Her grandmother lives there. Her parents are deceased. She is a widow. She does not want a parole because she has a heavy drinking problem and would probably live and work with an aunt who drinks heavily on the weekend. Her aunt works in a blouse factory in Fort Hall, end quote. And so I think because of this, her case was carried to the October Board of Pardons. In October, not much of her plans had changed. She did plan to go to live with her aunt and work in that same blouse factory. And at this point, it was voted that she be granted a final release effective January 27th, 1967, subject to good conduct. And her conduct must have been good because she was released on that date, January 27th, 1967. She served one year, five months, and 29 days of a three-year sentence. And again, I think the fact that this wasn't the most ideal situation to parole her to, but they paroled her anyway, is is evidence of the fact that they were just like, we kind of just have to get them out of here because yeah. there are too many women here. And actually, the, the women's ward would actually close in, in about a year anyway, yeah. um, because it was getting far too small for the amount of women who were constantly coming in. So next we find of her is a small clipping in the Statesman from January 19th, 1970, which reported that she had been charged with assault and battery and fined $100 and 10 days in the county jail. Uh, it listed Ontario, Oregon as the town she lived in. I'm not sure if she'd actually moved there, if she was just visiting, but that's all the details we have of that. 
About a year and a half later, a clipping in the South Idaho Press from Burley on October 25, 1971, stated she had been granted a marriage license with a man named James Carl Jones, not to be confused with James Earl Jones. <laughs> Just crazy. <laughs> um, and he, you know, this is around the time of Star Wars. So James Earl Jones is like a big deal. I think much like her previous husband, he was not the best person to have around her. He had been charged with assault about a year prior to their marriage. In March 1972, he was arrested for driving while under the influence and chemical test refusal, which I'm assuming just means he refused to get a blood alcohol because he knew he was drunk. Uh, he was arrested several more times in the 70s for driving while intoxicated. At some point, I think they divorced, as far as I could tell in terms of, like, what I could find on her records, but I don't know when or the details of it. And then the next thing I find of her is her death. Um, she died on April 18th, 1984, quote, after a sudden illness, end quote. She was just 42 years old at the time of her death. So all of this happened in just 42 years. Like, she really lived what seems like three or four lifetimes in 42 years. Her obituary read, quote, she was preceded in death by her parents and three brothers, Gilbert, Levine, and Luann Punkin, end quote. But we know this is incorrect information. Her youngest sibling was a sister. Luann was a girl. Luanna had died in 1976. Gilbert died in 1979. And Levine died in 1982. And she is buried at the Ross Fork Cemetery in Fort Hall. And so that is our number 11828, Philnoma Maxine Monsisco. Wow. Okay. That what is, a what a hard life. Yeah. Drastic forty two years. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I can kind of understand going off the the hinges around sixty five when her father dies, her mm-hmm. husband is killed. Mm-hmm. But geez, I mean, so many cards stacked against her, uh-huh. and then not being able to find find some like some outlet. way to get out of it. Yeah. 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 And she just, ends up marrying that that other guy who was arrested throughout the 70s for constantly being drunk which is not ever going to give her a chance to get out of that cycle every once in a while we find inmates who just get stuck in this cycle and they're just unable to find their way out of it and unfortunately she was one of those and i think ultimately a victim of it um so yeah it's i forgot this one was as depressing as it was i thought this was a little bit different so my apologies because i think this is going to be a darker episode yeah i don't think this this story is nearly as dark as what's coming from what um sam has teased for us but yeah uh, my apologies that this wasn't quite as feel good as as uh, sam's was last week Let's hear what you've got for us, Sam. So today I'm going to be talking about David Norwood. My sources include newspapers.com, Ancestry, his prison file, of course, familysearch.com, and most helpful of all was his court transcript. As we've already kind of mentioned, this is definitely going to be a viewer discretion advised story. If you just want to have a cozy November afternoon or, or day, just please skip this one. This one's going to be pretty dark. This one might ruin your day. Maybe just skip this whole episode, to be honest, <laughs> which you're halfway through at this point. But 
I feel like most listeners' ears just perked up, and they're like, ooh. <laughs> ooh, uh, I actually want to be spooked on, yeah. a, on a cozy November day. <laughs> just, just let you know it's not too late to turn back now. <laughs> From this whole podcast. <laughs> Now I'm going to start with a quote. This is a quote from the page of the State versus Norwood trial in 1897. Question. You found blood? Answer. Yes, sir. Question. Sure it was blood? Answer. Yes, sir. Question. What kind of blood? Answer. Human blood. Question. Sure of that? Answer. Yes, sir. Sorry, that's not an appropriate thing to laugh at, but it just is the idea of, like, what kind of blood? What do you mean, what kind of blood? I'm here for murder. This is not, like, pig's blood. I don't know. That is a interesting line of questioning, for sure. I'm excited to see where this is going. Oh, the court transcript spent way too much time about the blood, <laughs> the just to let you know. I just imagine it's just like, what kind of blood? Human blood. So it wasn't pig's blood. No. It wasn't cow's blood. No. It wasn't, you know, sheep blood. No. It's human blood. I don't know what to tell you. Sky, you just described about three or four pages of the court transcript. Four pages of that? They just, like, had to go creature by creature? Lizard blood. No, I don't even know where lizards live. Now, most of David Norwood's early years are a bit of a mystery, but there has been substantial research and family history done on his father, Richard Norwood, who was a very prominent settler of Utah. While it's unclear of how much of his childhood his father was around for, I felt that to be able to understand David, we first needed to learn a little bit more about Richard. Richard Smith Norwood was born in Greenville, Tennessee in 1811. He would be raised in the South, eventually moving to Alabama, where he would establish a very successful farm. His first marriage was to Martha Russell in June of 1834. According to his descendants, Richard Norwood would later write of the time by saying, quote, The eleven years that we lived together were very happy. However, in 1845, everything would change when Richard met A.O. Smut. Smut was a missionary of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Richard would quickly convert, and on April 8th, he would be baptized by Smut. Martha, however, would be a little more reluctant. There seems to be indication that despite a devout Protestant upbringing, Martha was willing to convert to this new religion. Apparently, Richard did not feel her conversion was happening quickly enough because he would leave her and all of their children. How many children were there? She was pregnant with their sixth child when he decided to discard his first family. Oh, that's so harsh. Yeah, kind of rough. Wow. Hmm. By March 12th, 1846, Robert Norwood would move to Nauvoo, Illinois to be with other individuals of his faith. But due to increasing tension and violence between the government and the Mormons, the group would move west. Richard would migrate with other LDS pioneers, arriving in Salt Lake Valley on October 6th, 1847. During the next 51 years of his life, he would rise to a prominent status within the Utah Territory. Among other things, he would be one of the founding settlers of the city of Morgan, Utah, which rests between Ogden and Salt Lake. Richard was a personal friend to Brigham Young, the prophet of the Mormons. He would also work in various leadership roles inside the church. Because of this, Richard would have great power and influence in the community. 
On October 13, 1848, at the age of 37, he would be married again to Elizabeth Bailey Stevenson, who was 12 years his junior. Within two years of that second marriage, his first wife, Martha, would try and win him back. Martha had struggled since Robert's sudden departure, and after the death of their daughter, Bethany, she would plead for reconciliation. She offered to join him in Utah as a member of the Mormon faith. Richard, however, was, quote, dubious about her sincerity because he suspected she mostly wanted to be reunited so he could help support their children. Yeah, because because you're their father. Of course she wants support. Also, this is at a time when polygamy is, is quite acceptable. So, I mean, maybe you get into this, like, wondering, does he get involved in that? Also, that seems like a really like easy way to be like, yeah, okay, sure, fine. Come be my second wife. Yeah, Sky, you're absolutely right. Um, well, Richard would turn down Martha, he did in fact have some other plans. On January 3rd, 1858, Richard, at the age of 46, would marry 22-year-old Caroline Chloe Norton. Wow. Richard would go on to marry again, oh, no. and again, and again. Like many men in leadership roles in the Mormon religion at the time, Richard practiced polygamy. Now, here, of course, is where it gets complicated as a researcher. Only one of these marriages was legal. The rest were conducted in the church, and while some of those records have become public, some have not. Most estimates put Richard's number of wives in around six. People who had wives, multiple wives, were the ones in high standings. And the fact that Richard Norwood had six, that shows you kind of where he is. Mm -hmm. He's not at the very top with, like, the leaders of the church, but he's also much higher than 80% or 85% of the rest of the population. As far as I understood it, those who were very high up in the church, but also people, men who were in good standing Mm -hmm. with the church could have multiple wives. So even if they weren't in the same position as Norwood— as long as they were sort of on Brigham Young's good side, they were allowed to have multiple lives. If you made him mad, you didn't get anything extra. Yeah. Um, so it, it was very political, and, and he almost dished it out as, like, quote-unquote reward, which is mm-hmm. gross. But, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. It was it was a smaller population than you think, but um, it wasn't just, you know, leaders and those who were kind of high up. It, was there also a concept of, like, the community where a, a woman would be widowed. And so mm-hmm. to protect her, she would marry to an, a man who yeah. had multiple li- wives and yep. he kind of helped sustain mm-hmm. and protect Yeah, her. and that I think was a big justification and continues yeah. to be a justification okay. um, for those who still practice it. So interesting. Yeah. Wow. Now, his exact number of children is also unknown, but by my count, if we include the children he abandoned in Alabama, it would have been a, at a minimum of 25. Wow. Now, his final wife, Adeline Ayers, he took when he was at the ripe old age of 73. Oh, no. How old was she? I don't know. Oh. I, I looked, I looked, I looked. I couldn't find, I couldn't find how oh, old gosh, she was. I hope. That is a very ripe that old is, age. Well, and he's probably not marrying someone who's that age. You know what I mean? No, like, no. Oh, oh no. I'm boy. so sorry for her. Well, and it, with each one of the wives that I could find record of, um, their age got significantly no. younger. Yeah. As in, like, he start, you know, he started at age 30, and the next wife, you know, his first wife was, like, 28, and then he got older, and they got younger? Or just, yeah. like, okay. Yeah, so, like, the... So the, it wasn't, like, they stayed that same age, and he just got older. Yeah, so, um, the... 
Elizabeth Stevenson was in her 20s, and then Caroline Chloe was even was even younger than that, <sighs> early 20s. And so there definitely seemed to be this pattern of he got older and the wives got younger. <sighs> this was the family in which David Norwood was born into. Richard's third wife, Carolina, had previously been married and had three children with her first husband. After marrying Richard, who was more than twice her age, she would go on to bear him Adeline, Dorothy, Sarah, Caroline Jr., Richard, David, Smith, and finally Isaac. So that's eight kids? David would be his mother's eighth child and his father's 19th. Richard was 58 when his son David was born in 1870. Now, as for David Norwood himself, there's not a lot of remaining documentation about his childhood. But he was raised in Morgan City and would spend much of his life in various parts of Utah. He was raised in the LDS faith and would attend Sunday school. He would only attend one year of school, but could read and write. Eventually, he would become a carpenter after completing an apprenticeship. Norwood was five feet and eight and a half inches tall, which was pretty average for the era. He had dark brown hair and a thick mustache. His most striking feature was his eyes, which were described as gray. Like many other young men of the era, Norwood would get gold fever and eventually decide he would have better prospects as a miner. So, at the age of 26, he would head north to Idaho in pursuit of gold. By 1896, Norwood found himself in Hagerman, Idaho, where he would mine and occasionally help on the O.P. Johnson Ranch. Now, there was no census record taken in Hagerman until 1910, in which it had a population of 308. So, 14 years prior, the community likely had less than 300. Despite its small and somewhat isolated population, the settlers of Hagerman would do their best to be friendly to one another and help each other in times of need, as we're about to see. During these years, Norwood lived in a small stone house in the canyon. Many of the houses sprinkled through this canyon were about a mile apart, but Norwood's closest neighbor was a man named Samuel Bird, who only lived about 400 yards away. Now, very little is known about Samuel Bird. Samuel was described by all as a very old man, but his exact age is never given. Samuel had spent many years as a prospector. Before moving to Idaho, he had mined in New Mexico and Utah. While in New Mexico, Samuel would get his eye punctured by a greasewood branch. His iris would turn a ghostly white, and Samuel would suffer from partial blindness for the rest of his life. Those are spooky eyes. <laughs> but Samuel was tough and would not allow for this injury to slow him down. After moving from Utah to Idaho, Samuel would build a dugout cabin in Hagerman and begin mining the rich soils of our state. Samuel, despite being solitary, was well-liked in the community. If there was one theme that stood out the most about Samuel, it was the time he spent at work. He would be described by neighbors for his ability to put in day after day of mining. On freezing winter mornings or burning summer days, unless it was pouring rain, good old Sammy would be out digging away, and his preservation paid off. While he seldom found anything bigger than a small nugget, he would often walk to town to trade in large bags of gold dust and flakes for cash. This is not to say Samuel was rich, 
but his hard work and patience was helping him see a lot more success than the other miners. Now, his relationship with Norwood is unclear. Norwood would claim that he moved to the area to mine on Samuel's recommendation, so perhaps they had met during the year that Samuel lived in Utah. David moved in next to Samuel, and the two men seemed to get along quite well. Samuel would say they had never had any disagreements, and the locals did not sense any bad blood between them. But it was clear that Norwood was frustrated by how little gold he was finding compared to Samuel, and he would blame Samuel for giving him a false lead. I do wonder, just real quick, um, because I know that in, at least in modern day polygamist um, families, the sons really struggle um, because especially in, I mean, this may not have been true. I don't know that much about polygamy in the LDS uh, early culture, but I know in the FLDS, like I said, it was only certain men who got rewarded uh, with extra wives. And so there, there's a whole chunk of young men who don't get like their father's inheritance, right? And so young men really struggle to feel like they're doing enough. Um, so I wonder if that had any influence on him. He's this, his father's 19th child, not, you know, his first son by any yeah. means. So he's kind of just like floating around. Like, I think polygamist families are so difficult for us to understand because of how small and, and tight knit a lot of ours are and so it's i wonder how much of that affected him as he grew up and didn't feel like he was doing what he should have been or he could be doing more and yeah and so i wonder how much that was influencing his his coming decisions which i'm assuming mm. since you're setting this up that's what's ha gonna happen well and uh, there's definitely a direct connection between polygamous and wealth um obviously it was the more wealthy men in the community who became polygamous so i have to wonder if that was influencing david too you know if he had access to mm. no wives or no wife because of the mm. fact that he wasn't that wealthy and, mm. and his father's wealth is probably being spread around and he probably wanted to make it big and yeah so he's hoping this is the easiest way to get yeah. money and get wealthy so that i can return to utah and mm -hmm. you know now what occurred between norwood and samuel on april 6 1897 will never truly be known we have samuel's testimony norwood's counter story and a violent crime scene Samuel was considered trustworthy, but as you're about to see, his memory of the event would be pretty incomplete. So, to try and give the most accurate rendition of what occurred, I'll mostly be relying on the medical examination, which might just be the most reliable witness to this attack. For listeners who are sensitive to violence, I might skip ahead about three minutes. Now, it had been a hard day of work. The weather had turned on them, and it had begun to rain. I can only imagine the fatigue felt by Samuel, Tom Clark, and Norwood as they walked back home that day. They probably just wanted to get home and get off their sore feet. Samuel and Norwood bid farewell to Clark, who lived further up the road, and the two of them walked the rest of the way back home. Samuel would walk up to his dugout and begin to unlatch his door, which was held in place with a nail and string. This is when a mining pick would slam down across the back of his head. Samuel, dazed and bleeding and confused but still standing, would spin around and try and face his attacker, only to find it was his friend and neighbor David Norwood. So why do you think his memory didn't hold up? We'll get there. 
Norwood would bring the pick down again across the top of Samuel's head. Wait, like while he was looking directly at him? Directly at him. Somehow, Samuel stayed standing. Norwood brought up the pick and hit him again, striking him just above his eye. Samuel still stood. This time, Norwood, using just the handle of the pick, would swing it like a baseball bat, and it would collide against Samuel's jaw. This would be the blow that would finally drop him. Now, as the bloody and mangled Samuel lay at Norwood's feet, Norwood would strike the man two more times. This is where the story becomes a bit fuzzy. Samuel was pretty close to unconsciousness. Norwood would deny hitting him at all while he was on the ground. Because of this, we do not know if these final blows were delivered with the pick handle or just by kicking the injured elderly man. But based on the medical examination and then later the autopsy, we know Samuel would first receive a blow to his back, doing severe blunt force trauma to the tissue next to his spine, Then the last and most devastating blow would be against his side, breaking two ribs so grievously that it caused the left side of his body to concave dramatically. Wow. Oh my gosh. You were not joking. This is (sighs) gruesome. Samuel, who must have been in tremendous pain, faded in and out of consciousness. But he did remember watching Norwood ransack his cabin looking for valuables. Once Norwood seemed to be satisfied, he walked back out to discover Samuel was still alive. We don't know if Norwood picked the pickaxe back up to finish the job, but what we do know is Samuel began to beg for his life. Samuel begged and begged. Despite all the pain he was currently in, he still did not want to die. Norwood considered, then leaned down and offered to make a deal with the old man. Norwood would let him live for however long his injured body would be able to function if in return Samuel agreed to never tell a soul. Samuel promised, Norwood instructed him to tell anyone who asked that he'd hurt himself after falling while mining. Norwood then left and went off to get help. I don't care how badly you fall in mining. The injuries that you sustain are like... There's, I doubt there is a soul who has been around miners who would believe that. Yeah. The, those injuries are insane. The, the type of injuries and the locations, yeah. especially. Yeah. Poor Samuel. Jeez. Now, Clark is the first to arrive, followed by Edwin Thomas, their other neighbor from further down the canyon. Clark, as I've already mentioned, was a miner. Thomas, on the other hand, was a cowboy who lived on a small ranch with his elderly mother. The men were not sure of what to do. Hagerman was very small, far too small to have a doctor of its own. They could try and send for help, but that would take time. So Thomas and Clark did what they could to wash off the blood and dress Samuel's wounds. He had three large lacerations across his head and above his eye, but the real damage was to his jaw and ribs. Since those wounds were not bleeding and did not need to be bandaged, they could do little to provide any first aid to those areas. After some discussion, they decided the best course of action was to bring Samuel to Thomas's mother, Jane. Jane had no medical training, but the men still felt like she would know what to do. Besides, if they left him there, he would die. 
Since Samuel was unable to walk, the two men carried him to the wagon, where they would cart him the rest of the way to the ranch. Throughout this entire process of cleaning the wounds and carrying Samuel to the wagon, Norwood mostly just stood in the doorway, watching. Norwood had gone and got help, explaining the rehearsed version of events, but after returning back to the scene of the crime, he began to act strangely. It seemed that the help he was willing to offer was spent, and he watched impassively as the men tried to care for the injured old man. Clark and Thomas took Samuel down the road about a mile and a half to his mother's ranch. In a detail that can only be described as heartbreaking, Thomas would later explain to the court that during that trip to his home, he would hold Samuel's hand as they went. Now, I have no idea what Jane Thomas must have thought when her son and Clark wheeled a very injured man to their home, but she immediately stepped in to help. Jane was strong, hard-working woman, and after years of working on an Idaho ranch, she knew the urgency of caring for injuries. She was moving on in years. She'd lost her husband along with most of her hearing, but her son and her managed to get by. Unlike her son, who had spent some time with Samuel, the man was almost a complete stranger to her. But she had no hesitation in taking him into her home, where she would care for him for the rest of his life. Neighbors, and eventually the constable, after hearing of what happened, would go on to examine Samuel's dugout. What they found was grisly. Samuel Briggs, who was one of the men recruited by the constable to help with the investigation, would later say this in his testimony about the crime scene. After we went down below eight or ten feet, maybe not quite so far, and back around there, we found, I guess there must have been as much as a gallon of clotted blood. Three or four inches of ashes covered over it. Blood was everywhere, splattered on the walls and all over the ground, but in a strange attempt to hide it, Norwood had gotten ash out of the hearth and tried to cover the worst of it. But there was just far too much blood to hide. They went out to where Norwood claimed Samuel had fallen, but there they found no blood at all. Between the looted cabin, the blood being in all the wrong places, and of course the injuries themselves, nothing in Norwood's version of events seemed to be adding up. Norwood and Samuel told the same story of him falling on wet rocks while mining. But despite this, there is still enough evidence for an arrest. Constable Snowdegrass would arrest David Norwood and bring him to the Shoshone Jail. It turns out a short stay in jail would be enough to inspire Norwood to change his story. Without being asked or even prompted, Norwood would confess to hurting Samuel, but that he'd attack the old man in self-defense. Norwood claimed that he confronted Samuel about the old man's misinformation. Samuel had not only lied to him about the mining prospects of Hagerman, but Samuel had also been spreading gossip about him. Angered by this accusation, Samuel grabbed his rifle and said, You son of a bitch, I'll shoot you. Norwood would grab a rock and smack him over the head, causing Samuel to fall and roll down the hill where he would sustain his injuries. After helping the old man back home, cleaning off all of his blood and tenderly bandaging his wounds, Norwood would heroically volunteer to head out and look for help. 
However, Norwood's description of the event would differ drastically to Clark and Thomas, who washed off the blood and dressed Samuel's wounds. Norwood might have known his story was not going to hold up in court, because on April 24th, with the assistance of another inmate, he managed to escape. Norwood and the other escapee pried a bar loose, then while using the bar as a lever against the door and a wire in the padlock, they would leverage the door open. Once outside, the two men would split off into two different directions. Norwood would spend the next couple of weeks jumping from train to train until he was safely back in Utah. Meanwhile, back on the ranch, the Thomases arranged to have medical personnel notified, knowing that until then, they would just have to wait and hope for the best. It took an entire month until they finally got a visit from Dr. H.F. Butner. Unfortunately for Samuel, Dr. Butner was not a physician, but rather a dentist. The doctor, however, was able to take a look at his jaw, which was still horribly mangled. While none of his teeth had been knocked out, his jaw was clearly broken, likely in several spots. An excessive swelling had forced the jaw shut. Here's what the dentist observed. I examined the jaw and found that the lower maxillary, or the lower jawbone, had been fractured that there had been a piece split off at the lower side, which was movable. Several individuals would describe the ability to move the detached part of his jaw under the flash. Oh, stop. Stop the episode. Oh, I gotta throw up. Oh, doing this research, it just got like worse and worse. (laughs) Samuel had been unable to eat solids and mostly been fed soup by Jane. Dr. Butner gave him a few medications to try and help with the swelling. In addition to that, he used a bit of mint extract and cayenne pepper as a, quote, counter-irritant. At the trial, when asked why the dentist did not see to his other wounds, Dr. Butner explained he was a dentist, and he was there to see the man's mouth and nothing more. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. But also, who was like, we need a doctor. Best we can do is a dentist. Like, nowhere yeah. there's there's a, anyone who knows anything about being a doctor. <laughs> All we have is a dentist. Yeah. As far as the rest of the injuries were concerned, Samuel would have to continue to wait. Finally, in June, Dr. Bao would finally arrive. But at this point, two months after the beating, there's not a lot the doctor could do. The cuts across the head had healed. The jaw, even after being attended to by a dentist, appeared as if it would be permanently disfigured. The ribs, however, were the most concerning to the doctor. Still misshapen and concaved, the ribs seemed to be the cause of most of Samuel's pain. The court trial would go to great lengths to describe the agony experienced by Samuel during these months. But despite his misery, he seemed to be making a recovery. By June, he was starting to be able to move around again, and it seemed as if he might be able to make a recovery. But on Sunday the 13th, Samuel would become sick. His sickness would progress very quickly, and by June 17th, 71 days after the attack, Samuel would die. The official cause of death was acute pneumonia, but before he died, he would do two last things. He would give his golden pin and ring to Edwin Thomas and ask for it to be sent to his favorite sister, and then he would confess to Thomas what everyone already knew. 
He had not fallen. He had been bludgeoned with a pick handle and then robbed. Can you imagine? Like, you finally are healing from all of that, and then you die of pneumonia. Like, that's so sad. He, I was, like, rooting for him Mm -hmm. to get better. And I also think that's so, like, wild that he wasn't after... Because he's in a safe place, he's healing up. Yeah. Um, that he didn't immediately be like, "Oh, I didn't fall." Like he waited until he was on his deathbed to be like, "It wasn't. It wasn't that." Which is, I, I don't know if that's admirable, or or if he was afraid. Afraid, absolutely. Oh, yeah. after taking a beating like that, you would be scared. Yeah, I guess to make that's. That I guess that's true. Right. That if you were like, "Well, I'm gonna oh. die anyway. I might as well tell the truth." Just agony. Yeah. yeah. Oh. The local authorities decided that there'd need to be an autopsy of Samuel Bird's body. Dr. Bow would perform the autopsy. The doctor would ask Stanley Hagerman to help with the procedure. Hagerman was a prominent figure in the community and, of course, is where it gets its namesake. He was a minor but also had more education than many of the other members of the community. Hagerman was not a doctor by any means, but he did have experience in dissections. A jury of men were called to act as witnesses, and a medical investigation would begin. Now, there were pages and pages describing the autopsy in fine detail. I did not want to put anyone to sleep with medical terminology, nor did I want anyone sick with the visceral descriptions of the dissection. But I felt that it was important enough to the story and the trial that I needed to include some of it. For my audience members sensitive to descriptions of bodily fluid, skip ahead about 60 seconds. If you've made it this far, you should be fine. (laughs) During the autopsy, Hagerman would describe the doctor cutting three incisions and then pulling back the flesh. Quote, just like the one would remove the hide from a beef. Inside, they found massive infection surrounding the broken ribs and the adjacent lung. The tissue had, quote, yellow stripes and small black dots showing that it had been caused by a contusion. The depression from the ribs was about three inches in length. The lung had grown around the remains of the ribs, and because of this, the lung had developed an abscess. Shut up. (sighs) Quote, that was a lower lobe of the left lung, a sac about the size of a goose egg. After it ruptured, it released what was described as about a pint of pus. <laughs> this is, I think, the easily the grossest one we've yeah, ever this heard. Is, this is so Well gross. done, Sam. Well done. Pint of pus. That's like, disgusting. That's going to be my new band then, name. <laughs> <laughs> but then the idea that it grew around his ribs. I... Okay, keep going. <laughs> please, please believe me when I say this is a summary of a very long autopsy. I was originally going to do quotes from the autopsy, and they were just too long and too awful. So I was yeah. trying to give you a paragraph describing this in as least detail as I could. After rupturing the abscess and releasing the pint of pus, it, quote, caused a very offensive smell. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> They would find more similar infection through the rest of the left lung. 
Now, as Samuel Byrd was being dissected, Norwood would be in Utah, hiding out in the hills outside of Salt Lake Valley. Norwood would spend those summer months as a wanted man, and there was no man who wanted to catch him more than Sheriff White. White, who oversaw the Shoshone County, was utterly determined that Norwood would not be able to get away on his watch. The Ketchum Keystone would report. Immediately after Norwood's escape, Sheriff White had a couple of thousand photographs reprinted from one that he had of Norwood, which, together with a printed description and reward of $50 offered, was mailed to officers all over the country with the above result. Sheriff White has left no stone unturned to get his man, and in doing so, he is $200 out of pocket. How Norwood would spend his summer vacation is, of course, not super clear. We do know that while hiding, he spent a good amount of time mining and living out of a cabin. It's also not clear if he was receiving any help. I think, however, since he had so many ties to the community and his father Richard was in such a place of power, I think he was very likely receiving some sort of assistance. Well, but also no one there theoretically would have known he did any of that. So he could just be like, hey, I'm, you know, I didn't do well in Idaho. Like, I'm just going to try it out here. Could I get a couple bucks just to tide me over? And no one's going to know. It. It would definitely help account for how he stayed hidden for so long. Um, Whether it was friends or family that were aiding and abetting him, um, it definitely demonstrated a strong level of loyalty because, of course, eventually they did find out. Mm -hmm. And they, they weren't hiding a thief. They were hiding a man who beat an elderly miner to death with an axe handle. Norwood's escape would not be compromised by any from his inner circle, but rather from his own boredom. Norwood decided to go to town to attend an event. But this was not just any event, this was the Jubilee, a celebration in honor of the city of Salt Lake's 50th anniversary. Many in the West are familiar with the summer tradition of Pioneer Day. Jubilee was essentially a precursor to this modern celebration, a festivity gathering in order to celebrate pioneer history. But this was not just any jubilee. This was the 50th anniversary celebration. So, Skye and Anthony, have you ever heard of the jubilee celebration before? I've heard of Pioneer Day. I still am really mad that they get a whole day off of work just for being in Utah. But, um, I mean, I've heard of a jubilee in terms of, like, the queen, but I've never heard it in terms of Utah. Of pioneers. Yeah, yeah. Well, it turns out it was a pretty big deal. Using newspapers.com, how many search results do you think I found for articles about Jubilee in just the year of 1897, just in the state of Utah? I think how much, like, a lot is. Like, there's a lot, a lot, but is... Right. What do you guess? 3,000. I was going to say five. (laughs) 5,000. I found 3,748 articles. I cheated again. So, Cheater! I cheated again. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I don't... This is just 3, off the top of my head. I would guess. Uh, like, maybe around, like, 3,700. <laughs> now, uh, Sky and Anthony, how much money do you think the city spent on the Are you going to cheat again? 100,000. I... <laughs> you cheater. 100,000 is all? Um, this is what the Montpelier Examiner had to say. Utah's Pioneer Jubilee. Utah's Great Jubilee, 
commemorative of the arrival of the pioneers in the valley of the Great Salt Lake on July 24, 1847, will take place in the city founded by them, Salt Lake, on July 20th through 25th. Over $100,000 will be expended by the commission having the celebration in charge and by the people of the state in providing entertainments and pageantry for the edification of the thousands of visitors who it is known will attend. There will be five grand street parades, three grand concerts in the famous tabernacle, band and vocal contests in which the best musicians and singers in the country will participate, athletic games of every description, balloon ascensions daily, the grandest fireworks display ever witnessed in the West, last but not least, President McKinley and his official family will be present in time to witness the reproduction of the arrival of the Pioneer Train. It will be the greatest celebration in the history of the West. So don't worry, Sky. I took this out of Anthony's notes. What would 100000 be in modern currency? What year is it? 1893? 1897. Seven. Do you have any guesses? Uh, I'm going to say a million like a million dollars? I have no concept of how much, like what the exchange rate is. I would guess maybe like 750000 This would have been $3.47 million. What? Yeah. Wow. So almost three and a half. Well, Norwood has been in the canyon hunkered down in the cabin. He's been in hiding for three months. He's probably lonely and more than a little bored. So Norwood decides if he can manage to be quiet and inconspicuous, he could sneak down to the valley and watch a bit of the festivities. With all the noise and excitement, he's surely able to go unnoticed, right? Well, unfortunately for Norwood, he does get recognized. Apparently all of those wanted posters that Sheriff White printed did the trick. Someone recognized the fugitive and quickly contacted the local sheriff, a man named Bert. Sheriff Bert and his men apprehended Norwood in his cabin, and Sheriff White traveled to Utah to escort him back. Quote, Murderer recaptured. Shoshone Journal. David Norwood, the murderer of Samuel Bird, who escaped from the jail last April, is again safely behind the bars in Shoshone. He was captured in a miner's cabin 30 miles from Salt Lake last Sunday by the sheriff of that place, and Sheriff White now wears a satisfied smile. Norwood's crime was particularly cold-blooded and brutal. Beat an old man to death with a pick handle. It is to be hoped that he will be condemned to stand on nothing and look up at a rope. Perhaps this time White kept a better eye on Norwood because he would not be able to slip under the sheriff's radar. During September 1897, Norwood would stand trial for his crimes. Now, I was able to access the first 173 pages of the trial transcript, which was incredibly helpful to putting together the details of this case. However, those court transcripts were in bad shape. Uh, Much of it was greatly damaged with missing pages, as well as a completely absent conclusion. In addition to this, the transcript itself was missing key details such as first names and dates. But here's what I was able to decipher. Seventeen men were called as jurors. Five of them were dismissed, several of whom were acting as witnesses in the case. Mr. Roger was called upon as the prosecutor on the state's behalf, and Mr. Walter would act on behalf of David Norwood as the defense. 
In many early trials, the defense team was rarely given an appropriate amount of time to prepare, causing the lawyers to have to improvise much of their case. While it's unknown if that was the situation in this trial, it is obvious the defense struggled at any attempt to prove Norwood's innocence. From the very beginning, the trial seemed to have an overwhelming amount of evidence weighing on the side of conviction. The defense was forced to double down on rather weak arguments to plead their case. For example, the defense would argue fervently that the gallon of clotted blood found at Samuel's dugout was never actually proven to be the blood of a human. For all they know, it could have been a slaughtered animal or even possibly paint. This theory was shot down by all witnesses who denied any possibility of it being paint. So, I mean, but all the things they don't have in the transcript, at least they have the questioning of what animal's blood it was. That's important. Pages and pages of (laughs) the witnesses trying to explain that there weren't any animals to be slaughtered in that area. That's why it's lizard blood. (laughs) It was most definitely blood. After an excessive amount of time was spent concerning the legitimacy of Samuel's blood, the defense would argue the cause of Samuel's death was unrelated to the beating. Going through a various range of alternative causes of death, including old age, pre-existing conditions, or an unrelated illness. My personal favorite is when the defense accused the dentist, Dr. Butner, of accidentally killing him with the administration of improper medicine. While early medicine was a dangerous game, the fact that Dr. Butner had practiced dentistry for over 20 years, both in Europe and America, and had administered the medication to Samuel almost two months before he died, it seems unlikely that he was the murderer. The most important thing, however, on the defense's agenda was blocking all testimony about Samuel's dying confession. Multiple people heard this confession and were eager to tell the identity of the man who Samuel claimed had attacked him. However, the defense successfully blocked all of this testimony on grounds of hearsay. Over and over again, testimony of Samuel's dying words were blocked. Until finally, the judge permitted Edwin Thomas, who spent the very most time with the dying man, permission to recount what Samuel had told him. In the pages of the transcript I've access to, Norwood does not make an appearance on the stand. But many individuals quote the variety of stories Norwood told explaining what happened. His first explanation was the injuries were caused in a fall. Then his second version, Samuel threatened him with a gun. Then of course the last retelling was that Samuel had shot at him with a gun. But none of these stories fell in line with any facts or evidence. Norwood in jail would attack Samuel Byrd's reputation, telling Sheriff White that Samuel was a, quote, bad man and that he had had trouble with others. Norwood went on to tell the sheriff, one man's word was as good as another and that there was two of them there and that his word was just as good as Byrd's. In the end, with all of the changing narratives, Norwood proved to the jury that his word was in fact not as good as Samuel's. Between his changing story and Samuel's accusations, it was enough for Norwood to be found guilty of murder. However, Norwood would not see the noose. There was probably a few contributing factors behind this. One, Norwood did have the opportunity to finish the job, to kill Samuel, but he didn't. Second, he did go for help. 
23rd, Samuel would not die immediately, but rather months after the attack. These all likely factored into why Norwood wouldn't be sentenced to first degree. Instead, on October 2nd of 1897, Norwood would be found guilty of murder in the second degree, and he would be sentenced to 35 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. He would enter into the penitentiary under the supervision of Warden Charles Von Dorn. He arrived during the construction of Cell House 2. With the main form of labor at the time being construction, it is very possible he spent his first years of his sentence building cell houses. It's also possible that he helped on the farm or used his experience in carpentry to contribute to various projects around the prison, as we know he later on would do. During his time inside the prison, he would be incarcerated with some pretty famous outlaws of the Old West, including Bob Meeks, Diamond Phil Jack, and of course the infamous Harry Orchard. In fact, when he applied for pardon in 1902, news of his pardon attempt would be completely overshadowed by Josie Kensler, who was attempting to be pardoned. For fans newer to the show, go check out episode two for the fascinating and complicated story of Josie Kensler. Norwood would also be in the prison during the execution of Ed Rice, James Connor, and Fred Bond. Norwood would even at one point be involved in a prison scandal. Fans of the show may remember Warden Arnie from previous episodes. C.E. Arnie would act as warden in the Idaho Penitentiary from 1901 to 1902. He would be a key player in many significant stories. My personal favorite is Bob Meeks and later Samuel Bruner stealing his prized racing horse Selim to escape. But he is more immediately recognizable as being warden during the Josie Kensler scandal. The scandal would not actually be the end of his career as warden, but the scandal immediately following about his improper use of prison labor. Warden Arney had apparently been using inmate labor on his brother Harry Arney's farm, as well as using that labor for his own financial benefit. This is what the Idaho statesman would say concerning Norwood's testimony on the scandal. Things for Harry. David Norwood, another convict, was then put on the stand. He said he was the head carpenter and was during the Arney administration. Did you ever see any state property taken away, he was asked. I did not see the things taken away, but I was informed that they were taken to Harry Arney's ranch, witness replied. I knew they were not for the prison. Witness said he made a china closet, wagon box, spring seat, grindstone frame, gate posts, and a tool chest, all out of the state material. Warden Arney told him to leave them outside the walls. He was informed they had all been taken to Harry Arney's ranch. Witness said tools had been taken from the shop and never returned. These included some tools taken to the residence of ex-deputy warden Donnelly in the city. Norwood stated that last summer he was engaged in all about 15 days on work that was not for the prison or the state. This would be a bad year for Arnie, who would put in his resignation as warden. It would, however, be a good year for Norwood, who was promoted to trustee status and was given the duty of overseeing the powder plant at night. Norwood would continue to stay on good behavior and eventually gain the respect of the other guards and even the warden, Warden Whitney. Sorry, did you say powder plant? That is what the Idaho statesman claimed, the powder plant. I, I, I wanted just a miss. 
Was there because there wasn't a power plant at that time? Was powder. there? powder? Right, but I'm just wondering if they misspelled power because we used yeah. to have a power plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it must have been. So power. Either, yeah, but I don't <laughs> powder plant. Was it running in the 1900s? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Yeah, yeah. it was about 1902. Okay, they oh, it. so, so yeah, so it could have just been a misspelling. Yeah. Okay. Even at times being permitted to sleep outside at night, eventually due to his good behavior, he would be allowed to become the gardener to the warden's house. But in August of 1908, something happened. Two other inmates, William Thomas and Del Wadley, were working on the Barber Dam when suddenly they saw an opportunity. Before the guards realized what was going on, both men were gone. The guards pursued the escapees, but their trail went cold and the bloodhounds were unable to find them. In fact, it took three years before they were finally able to hunt down Thomas. Go check out episode six if you want to hear that exciting story. Norwood would clearly be impacted by this. Because on the 10th of August, 1908, while working outside the prison walls, watering the warden's garden, Norwood decided to walk away. Three escapes in two weeks reflected poorly on the warden. The warden would quickly print and distribute wanted posters. Here's what that poster reads. $50 reward will be paid for the arrest and detention of convict number 587, David Norwood, who escaped from the Idaho State Penitentiary at Boise, Idaho on the 10th day of August, 1908, to be held until an authorized representative of this institution can call for him. Description, name David Norwood, age 38 years, county sent from Lincoln, height 5 feet 8 and a half inches, crime murder, second degree, build medium, stoops from hips, term 35 years, complexion dark, nativity Utah, color of eyes gray, weight about 150 pounds, color of hair dark brown streaked with gray, scars and peculiarities, Small horizontal scar in middle of forehead, three small scars left side of forehead, vaccination scar on left arm, mole on left breast, small scar on left kneecap, two small scars on back of head just above the ear, large vertical scar on left leg back of knee, has dark brown mustache streaked with gray, and beard is gray when grown out. Head slightly stooped forward, but stoops forward mostly from the hips. When last seen, he wore blue bib overalls, black derby hat, and either blue or black shirt. Walks with short, quick steps. When he talks continually, uses the word see. S-E-E. Please post in a conspicuous place. If arrested, notify me by telegraph at my expense. Any information obtained, please forward to me without delay. E.L. Whitney, Warden, Idaho State Penitentiary. The hunt was on. Now, if you remember, Sheriff White also put a $50 bounty on Norwood. But that was 11 years prior to the escape. 50 years in 1897 would have been about 1,736 in modern currency. By the time the warden put a $50 bounty in 1908, the value would decrease to about 1,636. After $400 of opium was discovered buried in the hills just outside the penitentiary, Warden Whitney began to think there is something more going on than just escapes. I'm sorry, how much opium did you say? $400. <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot. This is what the Idaho statesman had to report about it. Regarding the escapes of so many persons from the penitentiary, the warden said yesterday afternoon that he fully believed that there was an organization of former convicts working in the city with no end in view, but that of liberating as many as possible of the men of the prison. 
There are upwards of 100 men in Boise who have served their time behind the bars, and the warden believes that a number of them are organized for the purpose stated above. Search has not resulted in getting any track of the men. Railroads have been watched, ferry boats have been looked after, and everything possible has been done known to the experienced guards. This being the case, it seems all the more probable that there is an organization. Whether Norwood was assisted by these other men or just was inspired by them remains unclear. We just know that on August 10th, 1908, he escaped. So, Anthony, you know this, so don't say anything. But, Skye, let's hear a guess. How long do you think it took to recapture Norwood this time around? I would say, like, three months. They don't. Oh, got me. (laughs) Here's Whitney's remark on it. Warden Whitney states that he does not want to make any excuses for the men getting away. They have gone, and that's all there is to it. As disappointing and frustrating as it is, this is where the story ends. David Norwood, convicted killer. David Norwood, who beat an old man to death with a pick handle, escapes never to be seen or heard from again. So he is one of our few successful escapes. One of our 90, yeah. Well, and I'd love to see the crimes of the successful escapes. I found out he had a successful escape before I started looking into him. And one of the reasons why I I looked into this case was it was such a violent crime. Mm -hmm. Like to have someone like a horse thief escape, that's one thing, but to have like a pretty brutal murderer escape is Mm -hmm. completely different. I wonder where he went. Hmm. Utah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, probably. Wow. Wow, what a story. Seriously. And how long did he serve time for? He served 11 years inside the old Idaho penitentiary. Jeez. That was like a third of his sentence, though. He probably could have been up for parole soon. Yeah, Yeah, seriously. Seriously. But I guess it doesn't matter. He got out and he didn't have to wait for, you know, his... A day his, longer. Yeah, his pardon to do whatever he wanted, I guess. That is such a wild story. Seriously. Wow, Sam. I, I'm that sorry for how long that was. I'm sorry how dark it was. But once I, I was going through prison files, I was looking for gunslingers for the Gunslinger Project. And I found Norwood and at the top of his file, just in red, said escaped. Yeah. And I, I started going into it and I was like, oh, this could make a good episode. And then it just went deeper and deeper. And, like, I figured, like, 1897, I can find a couple documents if I'm lucky. And they just kept coming and coming. (laughs) It took me so long to finish this case. So long. Yeah. Well, what a relief that you did because that's an amazing story. Thank you. Wow. For real. Oh, my gosh. Been a great guest host. Yeah. We've been so glad to have you. Hopefully we can do it again next season. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So Anthony doesn't have to do quite he just gets to come and, and react instead of do all the research himself. <laughs> it which is, is a good nice. place to be. It's very nice. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been really fun to be on the show this much. And of course, guests keep tuning in. There's a couple of really good episodes coming. I'm I'm personally excited as a fan to listen to the stuff you guys have coming to finish this season off oh yeah it should be fun got some dark ones coming yep up. yes <laughs> i mean i don't know if i like i don't get into detail 
quite like this, I don't think. There's no pus uh, coming in any of my, my episodes. of pus. Oh. And a Seriously. gallon of clotted blood. <clears throat> yeah. Gosh. <laughs> Yikes. What an episode. I mean, this is after Halloween, but bef- we're recording it before Halloween, so this is spooky. Spooky yeah. to the max. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, this has been great. Uh, nice sort of switch up uh, from our normal episodes. So, I don't know how we want to do this. So, Anthony, Sky, if I say, do your own number, how would you respond? Keep the fluids in your body? (laughs) I I don't know. Don't uh, murder someone with a pickaxe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also might say, do your own time. Yeah. That works. That totally works. Do all of your time. Yes, don't escape. Escaping is not uh, good on your record. Don't escape. Yeah. (laughs) Because uh, this is not 1897, and you can't just go wherever you want without anyone noticing anymore. So (laughs) Do all of your own time. (laughs) And do all of your own number. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that wraps it up. Thanks, gang. Thanks, everybody. Do your own time. Do your own number. See you next week. If you enjoyed Pine Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. We have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. 